Well, good morning. It's lovely to be with you. It's uh, always a joy to join with God's people, sharing their worship, and a real privilege to bring God's word. And I just pray that the Lord will bless us together today. And we're going to look, of course, at the chapter that's just been read to us, be familiar to very many of us, this sixth chapter of Isaiah. It's a very precious portion of God's word to me. Quite a long time ago now, July the 22nd, 1966, the last meeting of that year's Keswick Convention, the Lord spoke to me. I was quite young. The Lord spoke to me from verse 8 in particular and called me to preach his word. I preached from the chapter many times since then. And when I was looking at what I should bring to you today, the Lord really laid it on my heart again. And so we're going to look together now at Isaiah chapter 6. It's a vision, a vision given to Isaiah. We believe he was a young man at the time, a vision from God, a vision of God, and it changed his life completely. Out of this vision of God came a call to God's service, and his whole life from that time on was a response to that call. But as we come to it, you know, we need to ask ourselves, how does it speak to us? What's the relevance of Isaiah's experience to us? What does the vision of God Isaiah saw say to us? Yes, God will speak in a very special way to some through this passage as he did to me those 53 years ago now. But for all of us, there's an awareness of God. There's a revelation of God. There's a vision of God here which we need. Now, if anyone here is not yet believing, not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their own saviour, you need to see God as God has revealed himself in this vision before us. Not just a vision, it's a reality. This is the reality of the God we come to. You need it. You need it to change your life if you're not yet trusting Jesus. But for every one of us who is a believer, we need to keep the awareness of God in this vision before us in all our living and all our serving of him. Our service for God needs to be grounded in the truth of this vision and constantly renewed before him. Now, I'm going to talk mainly about the vision itself. There are three great stages in what is revealed to Isaiah here and how it changed his life. At the end, I want quite briefly to look at the response, the way it affected Isaiah directly, and how his life began to respond immediately to what he saw. Now, it started in the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah was clearly already one who worshipped God, I believe, one who knew God already. But this day, everything changed. Everything was firmed up in God's will and God's purpose of his life. Three things particularly in the vision. God is the great king. God is the great king. Let's start there. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. 
the great king. The one the psalmist calls the king of glory, an awesome, majestic figure, sits on a throne, lifted up, exalted above the earth. In the New Testament, in John's gospel, John refers to this chapter of Isaiah and he relates it to Jesus. He said, Isaiah said these things when he saw his glory and spoke of him. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang our last hymn by Isaac Watts, that lovely hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Now, we know Isaac Watts best today as, as a hymn writer. Many of our loveliest hymns come from Isaac Watts' pen. But in his own day, he was first and foremost a pastor and a preacher in the Puritan tradition. And Isaac Watts wrote a special catechism, the old-fashioned way of instructing the young in particular by question and answer that they learned. He wrote a long catechism for his own young people, went right through the Bible. One of the questions in Isaac Watts' catechism was just this, who was Isaiah? Who was Isaiah? And the answer that they were to learn, Isaiah was that prophet who saw and spoke more of Jesus than all the others. Isaiah was that prophet who saw and spoke more of Jesus than all the others. We know the wonderful things in this book of Isaiah. He speaks of the birth of Jesus, how a virgin would conceive and bear a child, and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. He speaks of the nature of that child who is given, that son who is born. He speaks of his ministry. He speaks of his character. He speaks wonderfully of his sufferings and death. In that great chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, which so many of us will know so well. But it all began, I believe, with the vision here of the one who sits on the throne. You see, Paul says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. How do we see God? We see him in Jesus. How does this vision show a figure, a, a figure that to Isaiah clearly is of human form? It was a vision of the one who the New Testament would call King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one who is one with his father, the king that surpasses all earthly kings. This throne is no earthly throne. It's the throne of the universe. It's the throne of heaven. And the king of glory sits there. And the king of glory reigns. We sang in our first hymn, didn't we? The Lord is king. Lift up your voice. From world to world, the song shall ring. The Lord omnipotent is king. The king that surpasses all earthly kings and rulers who sits on the throne of heaven. Even the way that this vision was given and when it was given reinforces this truth. In the year that, that King Uzziah died, God gave me, says Isaiah, this great vision of the Lord on his throne. Well, Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. He was the longest reigning but one of all the kings of Judah. Isaiah was a young man. He would have known no other king than Uzziah. Maybe his father's generation would have known no other king than Uzziah. And that 
period of Uzziah's reign was blessed by God in many ways. It was a time of peace and prosperity and stability, probably the most stable the nation ever was after the days of, of Solomon was during the long reign of Uzziah. Now he's dead. What's going to happen? The death of a king so often ushered in change and turmoil and strife. What's going to happen with the death of this king, Uzziah? What doubts and fears come crowding in? And God shows Isaiah a king whose throne will never be empty. A king whose reign will never end. The great king of the universe. Are we looking to such a king today? Do we know him as our king? The Lord is king. Is he our king? His throne high and lifted up, but he's not remote. Doesn't mean he's far off. Doesn't mean he's in some self-contained heaven up there somewhere. Look at this statement that his train, the train of his robe filled the temple. Three years ago when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth reached that milestone 90th birthday, there were many, many pictures over her long reign on the television and many went back to the day of her coronation. Some of us remember it. Uh, for many of us in my generation, it was the very first thing we ever saw on television. We didn't have a television, not many people did, but my mum knew one lady that had a television. About 40 of us crammed into her small front room watching. It wasn't even black and white, really. It was brown and white, this old small television. But amazing to see it. Now, whether you saw it then, whether you saw it more recently as these pictures were shown, remember that long, long train of the queen, the young queen's robe? So long, so heavy, her bridesmaids could barely support it. Well, that's nothing compared to the train of the robe that comes down from the throne of God and fills the temple. In other words, God is not remote. He is where his people meet. He is where his people worship. He is there with them, this great king. The Lord is king. The first thing that was impressed on Isaiah in this vision has it been truly impressed on us by the word of God and the spirit of God? The Lord is king and everything is in the hands of a sovereign God. But that's not actually what made the greatest impact on Isaiah. The greatest impact came not just from the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God, though he never forgot that. It came from the holiness of God. He learned that day that God was the Holy One and something of what that meant. Around the throne, he sees angelic attendants waiting on God on his throne. They're called the seraphim in verse 2. Now, the seraphim, actually, it's, an, it's a very, very rare word in Hebrew. It's only found in this one chapter in the whole Bible. There's an idea come up that sort of seraphim and we sang the hymn, didn't we? Cherubim and seraphim, that this is a kind of extra order of angels alongside the cherubim. I'm not sure that it is. You see, the, the, the scholars tell us that this word translated as seraphim actually means burning, shining. I think Isaiah is describing as best he can what he sees. Around the throne of God are these, these shining spirits, these, these burning spirits. And are they in fact 
shining and burning of themselves or are they reflecting the glory of the one that sits on the throne? I can't offer it as anything other than speculation, but that's what I believe. Do you remember when Moses was with God on the mountain and he came down from Mount Sinai and the skin of Moses' face was shining? He was reflecting the glory of God, having been in God's immediate presence. I think Isaiah sees the angels around the throne reflecting the glory of God, reflecting his radiance, reflecting his beauty, but reflecting most of all his holiness. They're crying out, they're worshipping, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole creation indeed is full of his glory. The utter holiness of God. One of the great themes of scripture, a word we use so often, a word we sing in our worship, but, but what does it mean that God is holy? Well, it speaks first of the fact that he is set apart from all creation. He is the separate one who has made everything. He is the eternal God. He is the ever-living God. He is the maker and sustainer of all things, and he is distinct from all that he has created, though it's full of his glory. Full of his glory. Look at the wonders of creation, even in a broken world. Look at the things that show us God's glory, if only we have eyes to see. Sadly, in our day, the pride of human sin so often will not see, will it? We see on our television screen, we see pundits like Richard Attenborough and Brian Cox, and they do actually speak of the wonder and the intricacy of creation. But they don't call it creation, do they? They stop with the visible things. They try and explain them all away with no reference to God. They deny the glory of God, the one who has made and sustains all these things. How tragic, how tragic. In Romans chapter one, Paul speaks devastatingly of the effects of that willful blindness that denies the glory of God and fixes only on created things. He speaks of it as one reason for God's judgment here and now. God lets humankind reap what they sow as they ignore him and turn away from even the revelation of creation. And it's seen, says Paul, in, well, it's seen in the society around him, the society of Rome in the first century, utterly decadent. And so like our society today. Read Romans chapter one, it could be tomorrow's news, except they wouldn't slant it the same way. The society seen in Romans one is the society seen in the United Kingdom in 2019. And God says that because of such blindness, such willfulness, God's wrath is demonstrated even now in the way that things are in this world, in why it's as it is, in why man's society is so fractured and so wrong. God is the holy God. The Prophet Habakkuk says he's of purer eyes than even to look upon iniquity or wickedness. He can't bear it. He can't abide it. He must judge it. 
and the holiness of God above all speaks to us of the fact that God is utterly pure and righteous. He must judge sin. He must condemn sin. He must visit it with judgment. And so these angels, these seraphim, to call them that, they declare God's holiness. And even the way that they are described in this vision actually brings home something of what it means. It's never struck you how strange it is. They've got six wings. They only use two for flying. What are the others for? With two, they cover their faces. As if you see, even they cannot look fully upon the glory of God, the glory of his throne. These are the unfallen, sinless angels who wait on God, and yet they cover their faces as if they cannot fully bear. As the hymn says, they can bear the burning bristles. Well, Isaiah suggests in a measure they can't. They cover their faces. How casually we can regard our approach to God, can't we? How casually we come before this this great and holy God. How often we don't truly take on board his holiness and the wonder of what we do, the wonder of what he has made possible for us, the wonder that he has made a way for sinners like us to come to a God like him. Well, we're coming back to that in a moment. But let that wonder, let that awareness of the holiness of God be ours. And then what of that rather strange statement that with the other pair of wings, they, they covered their feet. Well, I believe this is in some ways the most amazing thing that we've yet seen. You see, the Hebrew use of this expression, literally translated to cover the feet, was used to speak of the covering of modesty, the covering even of shame, the covering of the private parts. Some of you may know how when Noah, after his deliverance from the flood, planted a vineyard, he later overindulged in its product and he became drunk. And we read in Genesis chapter 9 that he lay naked in his tent, having kicked off his bedding. And two of his sons, being aware of this, Shem and Japheth, they reverently and discreetly covered him over. And the Hebrew literally says, using the same phrase here, they covered his feet. Now, of course, they didn't just cover his feet and leave the rest exposed. That would have been utterly pointless. Our English translations rightly translate it. They covered his nakedness. They covered him that his modesty should be preserved. And do you see why I think this is so remarkable? It's as if even these unfallen, sinless, angelic beings feel somehow unworthy in the presence of God. They feel somehow unworthy, pure as they are, before the wonder of the holiness of their Creator. Well, if even they feel God's holiness like that, what of Isaiah? What of us? Isaiah's response is there very clearly. I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
That's actually much, that's the ESV, which I have in front of me. I'm undone, says the New King James, both much too weak. I'm ruined, says the NIV, much too weak. What Isaiah realizes is this is, this is devastating. This is something that will, that will destroy him, that will, that will burn him up. How can he survive an awareness, a vision of the holiness of God if even the seraphim must respond as they do? You know, we need to realize what Isaiah would now learn. The only way we can approach this holy God is through his equally amazing mercy and grace. He's holy, but he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who gave his son to be our saviour. But don't forget that our saviour is holy. Jesus is the holy one of God. Simon Peter, early in his acquaintance with Jesus, Luke chapter 5, down on his knees in his own boat before the one he has begun to follow because it suddenly sinks in who Jesus is. Leave me, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When he reaches out his hand and touches him, don't be afraid. But, you know, we must realize what God's utter holiness means. It would devastate us apart from God's own mercy and grace. You see, Isaiah is not destroyed, is he? Rather, he learns that this holy Lord is also the God of grace and mercy, the God who deals with sin and makes the sinner clean. Now look at the way it's put here in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is purged. Well, trace again what that tells us. Yes, it's in a vision, in a measure, it's symbolic. The, the attendants on God's throne, the seraphim, they only do God's bidding. The initiative's not theirs, it must be God's. It's God who sends from the throne to the altar. What was the altar? It was the place of sacrifice. What is on the altar? It's burning coals where the sacrifices are consumed. And the seraphim take burning coal from the altar. Bring it to Isaiah in the vision. It touches his lips. He's made those lips the symbol of all his sin. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And it touches his lips and it says, you're clean now. This has made you clean. Step back from the vision to the wonderful truth it conveyed. Truly there would be one who would come from the throne, from the throne of glory to the place of sacrifice to bear and take away the sin of others and to touch and make clean all who would come to him. 
you see what's happening here? There's a symbolic awareness here of the coming of Jesus, of the sacrificial death of Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross, the place of ultimate sacrifice, the place that does away forever with the need for another altar, the place where the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, without blemish or spot, offered himself for us, shed his blood, and cleanses those who come to him, even to the utter satisfaction of this holy God, because Jesus has borne it all. God sent no mere angel, if we dare say that. He sent his son, his own eternal holy son. Sent him to no earthly altar, but the place, I say, that does away forever with the need of an altar, the cross of Calvary, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The New Testament completes, doesn't it, the awareness of this revelation, but it is given there to Isaiah so long before. This chapter declares the gospel. This chapter declares what Jesus will do. This chapter declares that this great king, this holy God, is the God of such grace and mercy. And surely our hearts cry out with what's in the hymn we've sung, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. I count all things but loss for Christ, says Paul. And pour contempt on all my pride. Do you know that saviour? Are you trusting in him and only in him? Do you realise here is God's one way, the one way we can come to this holy God, the one way we can know forgiveness of sin, the one way we can be right with God, not by anything we do. The gospel word is not do, it's done. Christ has done it all. Born our sin, taken our penalty. We bring nothing except to trust by grace in him. That great old hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, saviour, or I die. Isaiah says, I'm done, I'm dying. No, this has touched your lips and your sin is purged. I have made you clean. What a vision of God. The great king of the universe, the sovereign of all, the holy one, the God of such mercy and grace. Is it our vision of God? Is it our awareness? Then, then how do we respond? How did, how did Isaiah respond? Made aware of God's call. For God calls the people he has saved to serve him. Made aware of God's call. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. By the grace of God, I said that 53 years ago. By the grace of God, many others here will have said that 
many years ago in some cases, more recently in others. What does it mean? It means, Lord, take me and use me, even me, in your work, in your service, in your gospel. In a way, it's an equivalent of what Paul says to the Romans when he says, I I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's a response to God's mercy in Christ. Lord, here am I. Send me. We all need cleansing, don't we? Even as believers, we go on needing cleansing because we go on at times yielding to temptation. We go on at times failing our saviour. But if we confess our sins, says John, and he's talking to believers and of believers, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, do we know that? Daily do we, as it were, come back to him for the touch that we still need? You know, Isaiah's lips were touched. He made the lips the symbol of his sin. Those lips from here on would preach God. Those lips would declare God's word, God's message. But they needed cleansing. Even our gifts need the touch of God to be made clean. Have we heard that call to service? Do we know it? It speaks to every believer. It really does. It's not just for some. I know we speak of those that are called to full-time service. Not a term the Bible uses. There's no such thing as a part-time Christian. We are all called to be full-time for Christ wherever we are in our response to his amazing grace. And really, my time has gone and I know it, but the rest of the chapter is quite difficult. It's difficult in two ways. It's sometimes difficult to understand. It's, It's difficult to read as well because God tells Isaiah what lies ahead. He leaves him under no illusions. He says, you're going to say to a people, keep on hearing, do not understand. Keep on seeing, do not perceive. Now, of course, Isaiah's not literally going to say, now listen to this, but don't listen to it. What it means is he will talk to a people who are by and large deaf to his words. By and large blind to his truth. They turn hard hearts to the word of God that he brings. Isaiah to take my word to a people most of whom at times it will seem all of whom won't want to listen. Won't want to know and they will turn away. And Isaiah cries out, who wouldn't? How long, Lord? How long should I go on doing this then? And the answer he gets is, well, it really means as long as there's anyone left to preach to. As long as there's anyone left to preach to. In in his own day, it talks about the coming of the period of the exile when the land will be empty and the people will be taken away. As long as there's anyone to preach to, Isaiah, you must continue. Christian, you must continue. You must witness, you must point to the Savior, whatever the response. 
in our land today with its dominant secular atheist, humanist culture and all the things that are happening almost daily in their agenda. We may and we do know something of what Isaiah would experience, but we are called as he was to be faithful in our witness, in our ministry, in the face, yes, of many disappointments, and yet, well, the last verse of the chapter, verse 13, it is difficult. The scholars tell us it's difficult even to translate. Very difficult, really, to understand. But clearly, it says there will be a small response, but a real response by the grace of God. There will be those that listen. There will be those that respond. There will be those whose eyes are opened by grace. It may be a tenth. It may be less than a tenth. But it's called ultimately the holy seed. God's people. The fruit of the gospel. God's grace working, touching, opening hearts, opening eyes. The God of grace and mercy is at work. However hard our ministry may be, dear Christian friend, catch the vision or recapture the vision and let that vision ground our response to his call, our desire to be used and to do his will. And though at times the way is hard, even discouraging. Let me end with words that Isaiah would write down later in his life and ministry, right through in chapter 55. It's the promise of a sovereign God, and most of you will know it. My word shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed, prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This God is our God. Amen.